There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped at 10 and Grant's microbiter. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon. I want to apologize to all you guys that are our fans, our subscribers, our friends. The last time we were live, we had a disaster. I almost don't even want to talk about it, but I thought it was my Wi-Fi. It was actually my laptop went kaputski, and that's all I want to say about it. But we're back on the air, and we're really happy to be back on the air because this is like a drug. And when you don't get your drug, you get go through withdrawal. So we miss all you guys. And we really couldn't wait to get back on the air. And I, I was doing the daytime shows, Coffee with Cannon, a Backyard Beverage, Bitching with Bill. And it's it's even though that's great to do, and we had some amazing locales that we uh, did that at, it's not the same as streaming and having you guys and us doing the police off the cuff real crime stories. Co-hosting with me tonight Straight out of Brooklyn, NYPD detective Phil Grimaldi. How you doing tonight, Phil? I'm doing pretty good, Billy. How about you? And sorry for those technical difficulties, but yeah, Mike did a great job. He really did. He uh, he's not a virgin anymore when it comes to uh, live broadcasting uh, technical difficulties. I think he was a virgin before that, but now he's not. You're right. We use that's a good term. But uh, Mike Geary, the latest to this um, triumvirate. Uh, Straight out of the Bronx, we could say, retired Dumb NYPD Bronx. sergeant and uh, retired, uh, not retired, actual active professor of criminal justice at Albertus Magnus in Connecticut, Connecticut, New Haven, Connecticut, and sort of the voice of reason. Uh, and, you know, it's so amazing that uh, our subscribers, our fans, they have taken to him like uh, butter to an English muffin. <laughs> Mike, welcome to the show. Hey, Billy, thank you for that analogy. I appreciate that. Butter to an English muffin. I like it. Thank you. <laughs> well, you know, Mike, uh, it's so true. So many people really have taken to you. They really like the calm way you talk about things, uh, the way you present it. You've even come up with some uh, some Mike Gearyisms, you know, like uh, consciousness of guilt. That's become a uh, <laughs> that's become a rallying cry when people hear that consciousness of guilt. Oh, that's uh that's Mike Geary, uh, Professor Mike, you know, and it's a it's a great uh, it's a great little not it's not just an expression. It happens to be the truth. And it's a, a term within the criminal justice field and within uh, someone that gets arrested doing things that are guilty, that are showing that they're guilty. What we want to talk about tonight really is, you know, there's a lot there's so much being said on this case. Uh a lot of it's redundant. A lot of it is the, the press tries to sensationalize it. We try to keep it, you know, on the on the level, just level headed and share what's real information. And one of the things we want to talk about, because you hear so many people, you know, we're, we're part of this talking head syndrome and this uh, podcast uh, uh, content creators. And one of the things people keep talking about is like, oh, I don't believe he did it. Or do they have enough evidence? And what is the evidence? And how is the defense going to attack this evidence? So with that said, I really want to talk to you, uh, Mike, and of course, Phil also. But I want to address it to you first, Mike, because you're the one with the law degree. What, talk? Let's talk about the evidence. Let's talk about some of the evidence they recovered in the search warrant at uh, Brian Koberger's apartment. Let's, let's, let's talk about that. Yeah, they did a great job um, recovering a lot of things that maybe the public might not even think are relevant or even, would even think about searching. Uh, for instance, the Amazon Fire Stick. Um, they're looking for uh, a couple. They found some hair, a few pieces of hair. Um, and then they're looking at like the vacuum cleaner bag, you know, things that people wouldn't normally think about. But, you know, uh, you you and Phil would would go to that sort of thing and and find it because you have you kind of you've been through this before you know what people do to try and get away with crimes so they found some you know 
a lot of good things there and they, and they got it. We haven't gotten the uh, test results back. So there's a little lag here, but um, you, if you look at the uh, list, um, do you guys want to go start down at the top or the bottom? How do you guys want to do we it? We should start from the top. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, like uh, Phil pointed out, like you talk about the, the glove, the black glove, that's more of like a light surgical glove that someone would wear. I mean, that's really important, especially if there is any sort of trace DNA or, or um, blood from um, one of the, uh, you know, four victims, uh, that's a slam dunk right there. If they've got that, that's really important. Uh, uh, Mike, can I just jump in a second? I, oh, yeah. Um, I believe that 100% what you're saying, if if there is some type if, of- uh, Yeah, it's a big if. Forensic evidence, whether it be hair, uh, DNA, uh, anything related to the victims, um, I think that that would definitely be a very, very strong and very, very uh, powerful evidence. But I think uh, they may have taken the glove in anticipation, if it doesn't have any DNA evidence on it, if they do find a pair of gloves or a glove with blood on it, that they can say, well, this is the same type of glove that was found inside Kohlberger's apartment. That's a possibility. Uh, we've done stuff like that. Uh, I had a triple homicide where we took a knife. It wasn't the murder weapon, but we felt it was consistent uh, with the wounds on the victims. So we took that knife and vouched it. And uh, the medical examiner was able to testify that that was uh, a similar knife uh, believed to be, uh, you know, similar to the murder weapon. So again, they could be trying to draw a comparison there with that uh, black glove. And again, maybe we don't know. Maybe it's uh, maybe he kept it, and it has the uh, the blood or the DNA evidence or a hair follicle from uh, from the victims. It could have uh, a hair from the dog. So again, we don't know exactly what it is that's uh, uh, you know related to that glove. But like I said, it could be for some oh, type yeah. of a, a comparison. Especially if you find like a left or a right. And then somewhere along the line, you find the other one to it, the complimentary one to it. That would be perfect. You know, so you can see what someone is doing. Uh, why would, you know, those aren't, it's cold, it's November. Why, you know, what um, is he doing? Is he using these things for doing dishes? Is he taking these things out? Probably not to walk around in, in the cold weather. You know, um, these are the kinds of things that uh, prosecutors could help just kind of show, again, consciousness of guilt. Um, a district attorney could attack it, but you just hope, as you say, that there's a little bit of trace DNA evidence, just a little bit. That would be wonderful. You, you know what else too, Mike? Perhaps when they did the surveillance at his home back in Pennsylvania, they said he used gloves to right. uh, clean out the vehicle and throw out the garbage. Maybe it was the same type of glove. Again, we can bring that in. This yep. glove was found in his home. Uh, he's wearing gloves on the surveillance that we did at his house in uh, in Pennsylvania. So again, just to, I guess, little pieces of circumstantial mm -hmm. evidence. Yeah. You know, Mike, the second item, the receipt for the Dickies, could that have been a, an entire bodysuit that fit over his clothing? clothing? That's exactly what have, I was thinking. That he may have worn the night of the of the murders, that would it would get blood on that and not on any of his other clothing. So yeah. perhaps he bought that for that very purpose and then discarded it somewhere. But that's you know that's what I would think that the prosecutors and the police are looking at this entire potential bodysuit that fits from the neck. All the way down to the feet. You're describing like a mechanics type. Uh, exactly. Jumpsuit, Billy. And right. Dickie does make those. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually had one myself. I used it for Halloween costume years ago, but it was a one piece made by Dickies with a zip up in the front. And it's like a jumpsuit, so to speak. Yeah. yeah Phil, Phil mentioned that the other day, uh, last week, and he was right on. That's the first thing after Phil talked about it. I mean, I said, yeah, that makes absolute sense. If you're going to plan this out and that shows consciousness of guilt and it shows malice of forethought, you know, premeditation that someone would go through the trouble of buying something like this. You know, you know they, the, the, Bill, real quick, the investigators can also track down that receipt, go to the location mm -hmm. where it was purchased and perhaps maybe come up with video evidence of him uh, purchasing the items. Again, very, very powerful if it's presented at trial, if they do recover stuff like that. That's right. Now, one of the things or a couple of things that we don't know, uh, of course, is this warrant was um, several weeks ago. And we don't know the results of any of the tests of the forensic evidence. They have on one of the pillows a substance, an orange or red looking substance that potentially 
could be blood. If this is blood from any of the victims, it's like a slam dunk. Uh, yeah, I mean, we say that all the time, and then some defense attorneys come up with ways it could have got there, you know, which I, I mean, I don't buy that, but uh, that's what, what we'll hear. The other thing is the computer tower. I think when, you know, when you talk about taking someone's computer, it's almost like taking someone's phone. It is a treasure trove of information. And I can't even imagine the searches that Brian Koberger was doing on his computer. And it could potentially be, you know, as we say, a slam dunk, a total slam dunk. Absolutely, Billy. And, you know, a, a lot of people don't realize that when you hit keys on a keyboard and uh, you're on your computer, there is a memory that's built into your computer. That even if you erase stuff, you could still pull it back up again. Uh, if he did searches on, I don't know, uh, you know, dismemberment of bodies or how to get, uh, make a kill, uh, you know, serial killer type stuff. That's all stuff that could be presented at trial that perhaps would uh, give the uh, jury uh, an idea into his psychological background of what he was looking to do. Uh, he obviously was an intelligent person. He was uh, going for his PhD in criminal justice and criminology. So again, um, that's going to be very, very important. It's probably going to be very time consuming to go into his computer. Uh, if he had access to a computer where he worked at uh, as the assistant teacher over in the college, that would be another uh, treasure trove of information, I'm sure. Those things are time consuming to uh, sort through them and go through all the different things that he may have researched on those computers. Mike, I wanted to ask you, um, now, you know, we have this evidence and there's evidence from several different venues, multiple, we could talk about more of it, but I just want to focus in. They, the judge and the prosecution, they gave the defense almost six months to investigate, to do their own parallel investigation on this case. And the defense doesn't even have a tenth of the discovery right now. However, they got all of this time to go hire private investigators, to have other attorneys that are assisting this legal aid attorney. What, what are they doing, Mike? Tell us what, what they're doing. I think in, because of the magnitude of this case, you've got a quadruple homicide, uh, four young victims. Um, this seems to be the act of, you know, a mass killer. Um, and there is so much evidence that the prosecution has gathered. They're gathering more every day. As you mentioned, we don't even know the results yet of some of the uh, brown stains that we saw on the uh, that were indicated in the uh, search warrant um, from the uh, his apartment. But they're being fair. They're being fair. Um, they remember the prosecution really doesn't want to rush this either, and they want to give uh, to be fair to the defense and give the defense the ability to, um, you know, consult with their own attorneys, um, so, you know, their own specialists. And the uh, lead attorney for Koberger um, actually has done uh, capital cases, you know, uh, in Idaho. So she's well-versed in Idaho law and, and how these things go about. Um, the prosecution wants to take its time just as much as the defense wants to take its time. Uh, for both are two, they're both coming at the same issue, looking at the trial, but from two different perspectives. Defense is on their back heels right now. They don't, uh, they have to get up and go, get going and kind of try to put the case together as a defense uh, that he's entitled to. And the prosecutors are trying to make sure that all their ducks are lined up in a row, that they've got, you know, as airtight a case as they possibly can. And they don't want to rush it either. So it's actually in no one's best interest to rush this case. Absolutely. Let me show us who this um, defense attorney is. In Lantau County, Idaho last week, 57-year-old Ann Taylor, the Kootenai County Chief Public Defender, was appointed his counsel. Kootenai County is about an hour and a half north of Lataw County. Experts we spoke to say Lataw County only has four public defenders and two recuse themselves. On top of that, it's common in an underfunded public defender's office for an out-of-county public defender to be brought in if needed. Back in 2017, Taylor started work as the chief public defender for Kootenai County and worked with the office before that between 2004 and 2012. 
In the interim, Taylor spent five years at a private practice where she specialized in criminal defense. The Idaho native received her doctorate from Idaho State University in 1998 and has since practiced law on the local, state, and federal levels. While Koberger's case may be Taylor's most high-profile one yet, she previously defended Jonathan Ellington, whose case gained notoriety at the state level. Ellington was given a combined sentence of 55 years for second-degree murder and aggravated battery convictions. Taylor helped overturn the case, arguing an Idaho police officer committed perjury in the trial, inciting prosecutorial misconduct. The state Supreme Court granted Ellington a second trial, where he was later reconvicted. Since Koberger's arrest, though, multiple news outlets have reported Taylor visited the University of Idaho quadruple murder scene at an off-campus home on King Road. Koberger was arrested on December 30th, more than one month after the four students were found brutally stabbed to death. Koberger, a Pennsylvania native, was arrested at his parents' home in the Poconos. After a brief court appearance in Monroe County, Pennsylvania last week, Koberger was extradited to Lataw County, Idaho. At his initial appearance in Idaho, Taylor was appointed his counsel. Moving forward, though, Judge Megan Marshall issued a gag order in the case blocking anyone involved from discussing it publicly. Koberger is due back in court on January 12th. So she has experience uh, in prosecuting homicides. However, since this is a death penalty case, she will have a lot of other attorneys assisting her, specifically almost hired gun type attorneys that are from, uh, you know, of course, the, I don't know, rather uh, the ACLU. Term, not ACLU, but a, you know, an anti death penalty law, law firms that take these cases. Maybe uh, Southern Poverty Law Center. Yes, oh, one God. of those that will, will assist her because. With a case like this, both from the prosecution and the defense, any little thing can cause this case to get an appeal. So they don't want that. No one wants that. So that's why, you know, we talk crossing your T's and dotting your I's. So, so important in a case like this, because, again, it is a death penalty case. Billy, you're making a great point. And right there in uh, the description of uh, the defense attorney, she actually got a guy who was sentenced to 55 years in jail for murder, second degree, uh, conviction overturned based on what they said was a, a police officer lied. However, he was retried and found guilty. But the fact remains that if you don't dot your eyes and cross your T's, which we've said ad nauseum on the show, and that's another canonism, by the way, ad nauseum, <laughs> uh, that, you know, you could, uh, God forbid, wind up where, you know, down the line um, on an appeal, uh, you get an overturned conviction. And, you know, what people might not really understand is that they're not saying that the person is innocent. They're just saying that they weren't properly convicted based on whether it be some piece of evidence that was improperly handled or uh, improper testimony. In that particular case, they said that a, a police officer or a detective perjured himself. So again, little things that uh, could turn into very big things down the line very, very important that you have all your ducks in order. And I think that the fact that there's going to be a six-month uh, period of time before the next court date is probably a good thing that everyone can get on the same page. The prosecutor's office, as well as the defense, they both have a lot of work to do. And, um, you know, th th this is going to be some trial. I th I'm going to be very interested and glued in when this case does make it to trial. You know, um, one of the things I wanted to speak about, which, of course, everyone uh, – that follows these cases, the sheath, the sheath for that K-bar knife that was found on the bed of Kaylee Gonzalez and Madison Mogan. To me, I mean, that is, that screams, that screams the most amazing piece of evidence. However, because it's touch DNA and not blood DNA, a lot of the defense attorneys and a lot of the talking heads are making a huge, huge issue about that. I wouldn't want that to be the only piece of evidence. Even C.C. Moore, who happens to be one of the top genetic genealogists in the nation, she said uh, genetic genealogy should never be the, the, the DNA that solves your case. It should be the DNA, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm paraphrasing her, the DNA that leads you to a potential suspect, but not the slam dunk DNA 
that's going to get you a conviction. What do you say, Mike? I think she's think Ms. Moore is correct. And I think you're correct. Uh, the touch DNA is very reliable, but not nearly as reliable as uh, blood DNA. But it does point, it does point, it did point them into the right direction of uh, Brian Koberger. And if his, you know, actual DNA that sample matches any of the samples found at the scene, then that's fantastic. That's what you want. The touch DNA would lead you to that um, part, that suspect, and it formed the basis of probable cause. It didn't for it wouldn't. It probably is not going to form by itself the basis of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, and that's what uh, Ms. Moore is absolutely worried about. But to get to the standard of you know uh, probable cause, and we've defined that many times, uh, I, I think is perfectly reliable. Uh, and it should be relied on. And in this case, it did exactly that. It formed part of the basis of probable cause. And that Absolutely. was fantastic. Magical Mary, thanks for the 499 super chat. Do we know definitively that it's touched, not blood, blood DNA? No, we, we do not know that. And no one really knows that except the police. However, we're being told that. We're being told that second and third hand. So thank you, Magical Mary. Maybe that's why they call you magical, because you come up with good questions. That's an excellent question. And no, we do not know that. You know, many of the things that we find out and us content creators on YouTube find out, the press finds out, is second and third hand. However, when we look at this case and we look back, many of the things that came out as rumor early on were in fact true. You know, the, some of the rumors from early, early on were true. You know, the um, well, when they put out the information about the white Hyundai, you know, they put that out there under sort of somewhat false pretenses. They said, oh, it's the vehicle to some witnesses were looking for. I mean, we knew second one when they said that that was bullshit. We knew that that was the purpose. I'm sorry to use my French. <laughs> Billy, you, you, you were the first one to say that because they put it out as a car that was in the area. They described it. Perhaps they may have seen or heard something. And again, you called it right from the beginning, Billy. I remember that. You says, I really believe that this is the perp's car. And you were 100% right on that. Listen, we're not right on everything we say, but you were 100% no, right absolutely, on that. No, absolutely. But I know how police departments work. And I know the little fibs they tell for certain reasons. And this was a little fib. And look how important that became. The other thing, one of the things that very early on, they said, in fact, the mayor said this, you guys remember this, because we criticized him mm -hmm. like all hell, when he said, oh, no, no one has anything to worry about. This was a targeted and personal attack. Remember that? Yes. Remember that came out? So there was some truth to that, though. We learned months later. It perhaps wasn't, he shouldn't have said it at the time he said it, but there was some truth to that. Phil, what do you think? Well, I actually was on Banfield on the 29th of December, day before the arrest. And I said th that exact thing that I felt that it was targeted because we had so much information coming out and going forward. Uh, you know, even though it really wasn't, uh, we didn't have access to the case folder. We didn't know as much as the investigators, but a lot was really out there. And I just felt, and I think you felt the same way that there was some type of targeting uh, based on the fact of everything we knew. Uh, one quick thing about the touch DNA, you know, the touch DNA, we're assuming it. And, and we've been hearing it, that it was touch DNA because you would think uh, the snap on the sheet, that's where you push it in and lock that locks in the blade. So it doesn't pop out of the sheet. Uh, and, you know, it could be blood, but it seems like it's going to be touch DNA evidence and touch DNA evidence um, is also, you know, very, very strong and powerful. And I would believe that after he was taken into custody, that they did match that touch DNA uh, to his DNA. And again, uh, the genealogy just put it in the, you know, in the area of his family with, uh, you know, uh, tying it to the father saying that this DNA, uh, uh, the father is going to be the father of the perpetrator of this DNA, the DNA that was found. So again, the genealogy part of it, the familiar DNA was very, very important. Again, it shouldn't be used just as the uh, sole thing to find the perpetrator, but uh, it puts you in the right direction. Well, I believe there's only 12 states that allow familial DNA. So that could be one of the reasons that lawyers, prosecutors, defense attorneys can make a huge argument against this touch DNA and, and the fact that it was compared against his father, which I think was like a 
99% chance that it, he was related, the perp was related right. to the person's DNA that was tested. Professor Mike, what do you think? Um, I think that a, a, a good defense attorney is going to try to, you know, pound the table, get an expert on there to talk about the uh, the odds, maybe not being 99.999, that sort of thing. They have to address the DNA, no matter what their strategy is on defense. That's the big, you know, magilla in the room. They're going to have to try to uh, somehow knock that down a little bit. And remember, a defense attorney is only looking to hang up one of the 12 jurors. And you might get one juror who might just think, well, you know, maybe it, it wasn't really him. Um, as strange as that might seem to us, you never know. So they, uh, the defense attorney is going to attack it. And I think that's probably the only thing they can do when it comes to attacking the DNA. You know, Schmitty is, <laughs> I don't, did I use that word Magilla? Who used it? Was it me? She's asking, what's a Magilla? A Magilla is just a huge situation, you know, a huge. A shit show. Um, yeah, a shit show. <laughs> yes, that's a Magilla. It's like. Here's my language, but that's what it yeah, is. Yeah, I did I use it or did you use it, Phil? I don't even remember. I, I think Mike might have said. Um, yeah, he said so, yeah, Sometimes we use NYPDisms. And I'm I sorry about the NYPD. I can't get it out of my blood. No, no, that's yeah. fine. It's, I, I love language and I love slang and I love, you know, uh, some of the, the words that we use that maybe people. Cop language is a whole whole language unto itself. You know, when we folks, when Mike said before, you know, probable cause, the, the DNA uh, from the father, that's what gave them probable cause. Let's think of what else could have given them probable cause besides that. And, you know, again, probable cause by definition is facts and circumstances that will allow a reasonable person to believe that a crime has been committed and the person being arrested committed the crime. Wow, that was a mouthful. I can still remember that from my professorial days. <laughs> I remember Very good. Very anyway, good, Ellie. Anyway, many other things. For example, how about when the FBI and the Pennsylvania State Police were outside his house, and at 0400 in the morning, he's washing his car, the interior of his car, with gloves on. How about at the same time, he's throwing his garbage into his neighbor's garbage bins? If that's not probable cause based on the totality of all these circumstances, it's awfully close. How about the fact that his car was seen on video at the time of the murders, driving up and down the block and then parking behind the house? How about the fact that they have cell phone information that puts his car on 12 prior occasions doing a recon on that house? If that's not probable cause, it's really building that ladder of suspicion, to, I, I, in my mind, that's probable cause. You Mike? know what, Phil? Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Phil, go ahead. If, if you take the DNA out of it, let's take the DNA evidence out, the sheet, we'll just uh, erase that for a second. Uh, the college uh, police officer uh, does the check, finds that there's a vehicle at uh, WSU, fitting the description of the vehicle they're talking about. Now we have somewhere to start. Brian Holberger owns that vehicle. They do his, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Kohlberger. Uh, they, they do his cell phone records. Uh, they find that the vehicle uh, is in the area based on video. Now they have the cell phone records tying uh, him to the vehicle in the area at the time. Just those two pieces right there is almost the standard, I believe, of probable cause. And then all the other things that you talked about, Billy, the fact that he's in the middle of the night emptying out the car, cleaning the car, throwing garbage in the neighbor's house. And there's probably going to be other things. We heard that um, you know, there was a connection to uh, not only him reconning the location on 12 different occasions, uh, there was a connection to him following them on social media, following the victims on social media. I believe it was uh, Instagram. And again, they, uh, two of the uh, victims worked in a restaurant, a vegan restaurant, which he uh, may have, uh, you know, uh, facilitated, gone to, uh, you know, patronized that restaurant. So if you took all of those things and forget the DNA, I think that right there would be probable cause as well. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm just piling up all the circumstantial evidence, which to me screams probable cause, not whispers probable cause, screams it out. Professor Mike, what do you think? Well, not not any single thing by itself is probable cause. 
I think. But when, as you say, it's a one little piece. You put it all together and it's not, remember, it's not absolute certainty. It's not proof beyond a reasonable doubt. It's probable cause. Is it more likely that a crime was committed and this person did it? Are you being a reasonably prudent police officer in thinking that this person committed the crime? Absolutely. You know, washing your car at 4 a.m. is not against the law. Putting your garbage in a neighbor's trash can, that's rude. It's not against the law. Um, but you put those two things together. You put the uh, cell phone pinging, you know, on 12 different occasions. You put the cell phone lack of pinging uh, before and I'm sorry, during, but before and after you put that there, you put this, the pictures of him in the Hyundai, you put all those things together and absolutely you've got well over as, as you know, well over probable cause. 100%. Folks, this is police off the cuff, real crime stories. If you like real crime from a police perspective, you're in the right place. And if you're not subscribed to us, what are you waiting for? Go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell, share us with your friends, uh, show us the love. Also, if you want to uh, help us financially, we have a Patreon with three different levels, and we also have a YouTube channel membership with Countem, five different levels. And you see the folks with the green font in the chat, they are our supporters, our friends, our subscribers our um, police off the cuff family and we really really appreciate them and we're trying to give you guys the best coverage we can on this case a little different than most but uh this is a an ex example of a just a really horrific horrific uh quadruple murder and we always do shout outs to the family and we can't even imagine what they're going through at this point and uh ethan chapin uh, Zaina Canodal, Kaylee Gonsalves, and Madison Mogan. And we always want to mention their names as uh, the the four young students that lost their lives in this situation. Just terrific. Absolutely. You, you know, Bill, the uh, when you look at the list of evidence that was recovered from inside Kohlberger's apartment, uh, his off-campus apartment at WSU, we don't know what the list of items that were recovered at the scene. I am sure we know that there was 103 items recovered. We don't know what those items were. There could be a mountain of DNA and physical evidence that may tie him. We know about the uh, the bloody shoe print. Uh, at the location. Uh, and we also know that DM saw him exiting through that rear back door. And that's where that bloody shoe print was found. Uh, they were looking for a specific type of shoe when they executed the search warrant over at his home. And I, I guess the uh, both in Pennsylvania and the uh, apartment over at WSU, I don't believe that it was covered, but again, uh, recovered. But uh, again, we don't know exactly what was recovered from the location in Pennsylvania. We only know what was recovered from the location, uh, the off-campus apartment at WSU. You know, Phil, even with a financial check and a credit card check, Maybe yep. he bought a Vans type shoe in the past six months or the past year. Good that is again strong circumstantial evidence, also. Exactly. And That's right. They they will do financials on him. Trust me. We talk about another canonism perpology, and that's a study of the background of this perp. And they're digging deep. They're going into his childhood. And that's another aspect of the case that we, as three former NYPD uh investigators, two sergeants, and a detective. We we haven't really, I don't think I've ever used a behavioral analyst on any homicide case I've ever worked on. However, it's very common in multiple murder cases like this. You have, of course, we talk about the Beltway Sniper down in the Virginia area. There was all kinds of uh, behavioral analysts on that case. And, 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 and in reality, they did a very poor job. They... Uh, they guessed that the perpetrator was a male white in his early 20s, excuse me, late 20s, early 30s. And it was a male black that was 17. So they were so far off. I just thought I would mention that. But so behavioral analysis, even though it sort of makes us feel good, it's not an exacting science whatsoever. You know, so like, go ahead. Well, I, I think that is relevant if um, we're talking at, at toward, like, say, for instance, if he is convicted and we're looking at a possible uh, 
debate over aggravating circumstances and mitigating circumstances, the defense would be able to present some sort of, you know, a psychologist or behaviorist to talk about why he behaved the way he did. But for the prosecution's point of view, um, a behavioral analyst would be able to demonstrate uh, the behaviors that they were looking at, maybe statistically in these sort of situations, this is the probability based on our research on these kinds of mass killings that might help point them in the right, would have helped point them in the right direction and would have actually been part of maybe what went into probable cause. So there's some relevancy there uh, for the officers, um, maybe not at trial, but maybe pre-trial to explain to a judge and to a grand jury, whatever it happens to be, you know, why are, what, what's another reason why we're looking at this person? And the behavioral analysis will help guide because of its statistical value uh, to investigators. You know, Mike, I see the prosecutor starting off with his opening statement, talking about some of the things in the behavioral analysis. For example, you know, him growing up, him studying serial killers, him being interested in criminology because his whole uh, goal in life was to kill people. And I could see the prosecutor opening up in his opening statement and a lengthy opening statement and setting the field for that, setting it up that, look, this guy planned to do this. He studied this. He studied that. And he this is no accident that it culminated in this horrific quadruple murder. Yeah, I think the, uh, op the prosecutor in their opening statement, because remember, the prosecutor bears the burden of proving guilt on every, each and every element of the crime beyond a reasonable doubt. So in all prosecutions, the prosecutor always gets the opening argument before the defense makes their opening argument. And I think that would be a very succinct argument to make. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, here we are. Um, we're going to be, you know, showing you evidence to uh, against Brian Koberger. Um, how did we get here? You know, what are some of the things that brought us to him? You know, uh, behavioral analysis and statistical um, probabilities uh, regarding gender, um, you know, uh, space in terms of how far uh, the, a person might travel statistically to get to a homicide scene. All of these things. You set the tone for the uh, jury right off the bat. I think that would be a smart move to make. Absolutely. JJ, thank you for the 499 super sticker. I want to play a little bit of uh, this was on Megan Kelly, another talking head here, but an analysis. Being rejected over and over. There's one report about the FBI um, interviewing somebody who's in the sixth grade with him, who he pursued in a way that was awkward and uncomfortable for more than just this girl, apparently. And uh, she rejected him. Pretty girl. No woman has come forward to say she had a positive experience with him. There's been a couple of people coming forward saying very odd guy. No, not a social person and so on. And talked about how he'd been bullied quite a bit when he was very, very overweight before he dramatically lost a bunch of ton of weight. Um, so why now? Why at 28, you know, while he's getting his PhD, he's sort of at the end of the road in terms of his education, about to go out there and earn money. Like why? Uh, Ted Kaczynski was about the same age when he uh, uh, launched his first bomb at the, in Chicago and then four of them right after that. Uh, some people, it takes longer to uh, mature in terms of their criminal sophistication or devolve in terms of their, their psychological disorders. And I'm not, not clinically saying that. So who knows exactly what happened? I think a big factor with, uh, with BK is that um, I think he grew up in northeastern Pennsylvania. I'm from Philadelphia originally. I know that area. He went to school a little bit away from there. But look what he finally did at the age of 28 or so. He travels 2,500 miles across country. He's far away now, finally, from the tentacles of his parents, of his familial upbringing, uh, you know, the home, the neighborhood where he grew up. And he may think he may be thinking for the first time, I am finally on my own. I can do what I want. I don't have any daily reporting or weekend reporting to any parents or authority figures. This is my opportunity. It doesn't mean he moved out there consciously to kill four people. It's just that it was a, a Jupiter aligning with Mars, with a few other planets in there. And of course, not in a good way. These women that, that represented everything that's gone wrong with him in the earlier stages of his life. These, this uh, behavioral hodgepodge of issues that he's had to deal with 
uh, with rejection time after time again. And again, these, these, these planets lined up for him. He's away from home. He's, uh, he has autonomy. He has a, an important position. He's, you know, again, he's in cell. He's probably followed these crimes from the past. I wouldn't be surprised. That's that term, incel. You know, and I think this gentleman here was the first person I heard that used this term. Uh, and I, uh, and frankly, I'll be perfectly frank, I've never heard that term before, uh, before I started covering this case. And it stands for intentionally, uh, not, not intentionally celibate, right? That's what an incel is. And apparently there's a group of these type of people that sort of comb the internet looking for, uh, looking for each other and looking for people that they can perhaps, I don't know, would stalk or, or uh, what would be the correct word? Billy, uh, do you, uh, are you getting at like um, uh, a motive perhaps? Is, is this going to be part of the motive that he was an incel, he was hurting inside, rejection from women in the past, uh, he has the interaction at the restaurant and maybe perhaps uh, again rejected and that's what leads him to target uh you know, uh, uh, perhaps uh, Kaylee and Maddie in this case. I, I think that the, the that incel thing and the unrequited love or unrequited lust uh, leads to the rage mm -hmm. against against women that he should manifest over time. Yes, it manifested over time, and this very look. I am no psychologist. I'm just a mere homicide sergeant that has a master's degree. I am not a doctoral or PhD. I don't have those three letters after my name, PhD. I have a Supreme Commander. I have, <laughs> I have that You're title. You're a pretty hot dude, PhD. <laughs> but I don't dude. have those three letters, PhD, after. So, but many of these, you know, uh, behavioral analysts, some of them say the same thing. Some of them say things are a little different. Some say things that are maybe a little bit outrageous. But I think if you look at his psychological profile, He's got problems. Absolutely. And I think, look, we've talked about how motive is not necessary to gain a conviction, but I think there's going to be enough put out about there. Perhaps they won't have an exact motive. I think the only way you're going to get the exact motives would be if it comes out of his mouth, but they're going to put enough things out there about him. They're going to talk about his history, how, again, maybe from childhood, he was rejected by women. He's an incel. He studied uh, serial killers, criminology, all of that. And then uh, we're going to talk about perhaps that there was an interaction uh, with him at the restaurant that the two young ladies worked at. Uh, again, following on Instagram, the 12 times recon. And now if you put all of those things out there that I just said, I think a sensible jury and most people that are on juries are very sensible, will be able to come to a conclusion that, yeah, I could see the motive being him being rejected throughout his life. That's why he targeted these young, beautiful girls. Perhaps one of them may have rejected him. And again, we're not going to put the, uh, perhaps we're not going to put the motive forward at the prosecution by the prosecutor, but I think enough is going to be out there for the jury to come to their own conclusion about the motive. And this is what will take place in the jury room during deliberation. I'm sure of it. I just think that, and Mike, I'm going to go to you after this. I think we're building the totality of the circumstances, the totality of the evidence. And we can't even talk about yet what I consider to be probably the most important evidence and that's the results of the autopsy. I'm sure, I'm, I mean, I'm almost positive that there had to be commingled blood in that crime scene. And they're not releasing that yet. The way that, the, uh, that all four of these young kids were killed is all very, very important to this. And per perhaps even their clothing. And, uh, you know, we spoke about it a million times. If there's DNA... Underneath the fingernails of any of these victims, you know, he should reserve his seat in the electric chair, you know. <laughs> yeah, Billy, can I just make one comment about the incel that sure. was brought up? Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure if that sort of information would even make it in front of a jury uh, because there's many people that have lifestyles that where they are voluntarily celibate, clergy and things like that. Um, 
Yeah, he's an he's an awkward, quirky guy with very, with very little social graces. He's been that way for a long time, at least since he was about 15 or 16 years old, when he began to understand that he's kind of not being able, he's not kind of able to feel normal human feelings towards people in his family um, and trying to come to grips with that. Any other person who did not have that dissociative um, kind of condition would have moved across country and would have just gone on to study criminology and get his PhD. Um, and uh, the incel thing, I think, is probably something that it's interesting. I don't know if what really how much it contributes to uh, his motive, but I think probably the most important thing would be that uh, the fact that there was some sort of disassociative uh, uh, condition that he was actually experiencing, where any normal person, if they were rejected by a girl in a restaurant, they'd you know go on and something else. But uh, he, because of his disassociative theory, has that freedom to actually hurt people and not even feel any sort of uh, sympathy or empathy for them whatsoever. And uh, that's the scary thing, I think, is, is that ability that he has as a sociopath to um, do what he did and be very, very calm about it. You know what, Mike, can I just piggyback what Mike said about this uh, uh, incel uh, term? The way I think it might be able to get in there is perhaps he may have been, uh, you know, in chat rooms in the dark web and talking mm -hmm. about it with other incels. If they do find that in his uh, text messages or his online chats or something like that, perhaps that would be a way that it could get Maybe. put in there. His, of his own words, I mean, if it's his words saying, right. yes. I'm an incel, then uh, I think it would be able to be brought in. But again, just insinuating it based on what, you know, so I don't, I don't think it exactly. would make it into a courtroom. I agree with you on that, Mike. Yeah. Mystic rogue incel is not an excuse to murder. No, we're not saying 100%. it is. Uh, the defense is going to use the bullying mechanism. Yes. It irritates me when they have all of these excuses for someone who took innocent lives. Mystic rogue, you're uh, preaching to the choir. Absolutely. That's uh, that is so true. I'm just, you know, we're just sort of reiterating and restating some of the things we're hearing and the potentiality that some of these things can be used or is going to be used as some type of, of defense. Uh, and, and we expect to hear some of these things. Phil, would you please uh, take care of this? Joe Murray, attorney at law, have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of of legal counsel in the New York area, do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of defense. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702, or you can email Joe at joe at jmurray law.com. Joe is a big supporter of police off the cuff, real crime stories. And he has appeared on our show many times in the past. He is a terrific trial attorney. You know, folks, getting back to, to the evidence and um, what the defense attorney will be attacking also is not necessarily the evidence, but how it was obtained and how it was invoiced, looking for mistakes made by crime scene detectives, mistakes they're going to say, that the scene was contaminated. There's video of that. There's video of people walking in and out of that house without Tyvek suits on, without wearing little booties that we wear on our feet when we go into crime scenes. Low cards, principle of exchange. You'll hear the defense talking about that. This scene was contaminated. How can we trust this scene? And she'll. I'd like to show this video and they'll show video of people walking in and out of that crime scene without PPE, personal protection equipment, which are Tyvek suits. Mike, what do you think? I think a defense attorney has got to do that. It's got to attack any avenue through any avenue they can. And uh, there may be able to, uh, as you mentioned about the crime scene, how, how is it handled? There's probably pro written protocols for the state police there in Idaho they, they, you know, uh, the FBI, and if people start violating protocols because they're not wearing the Tyvek suit or the booties, up, uh, that's one more thing a defense attorney can use to try again to attack the reliability of the evidence and to demonstrate the possibility that there is some reasonable doubt as to the results because 
uh, if the evidence was tainted, you're going to get, you know, the, their argument would be you're going to get tainted results. And um, whether or not it'll be successful, remember, they only have to get one person on that jury to agree with them. Absolutely. Let me play a little of this Ashley Banfield. Uh... Suspect in the Idaho student murders was a doctoral student in criminology. Maybe more than we thought. One study conducted by Matthew Robinson at Appalachian State University reveals that criminologists can themselves be what they study, criminals. Robinson sent out anonymous surveys to 522 criminologists asking them whether they themselves had ever committed a crime. And the results were jarring. Many of them said yes. The most common confessions involved theft and DUI, but it didn't end there. 25 of them admitted that they committed battery. 22 said they were guilty of burglary. Three admitted to rape, wow. and it wasn't just in their distant past either. Many of those offenses had been committed the previous year. The survey did not ask about murder, but the question remains, does the study of criminology encourage people to commit crimes, or does it attract people who are inclined to be criminals anyway, or none of the above? I am joined by Casey Jordan, a criminologist, and she is not a criminal. She's also an investigative profiler and a behavioral analyst. So you're perfect. Um, first of all, what's your reaction to the survey results? Well, I dug this survey up. It's actually from 1998. And uh, I contacted Matthew Robinson to see if he had done it again. But, he, you know, we had a good chat about it online because as far as I know, it's the only survey of criminologists where they have been asked to self-report their own crimes. And back in 1998, a lot of the crimes that they were confessing to were um, things like stealing software, you know, it's a little bit out of date today, or unfortunately sleeping with students or, you know, uh, making up data for their research results. But when asked about those index crimes from the Uniform Crime Report, there was self-report. And I do believe the survey, which was a male survey back in the day, uh, was administered properly to get veracity, to get truthfulness. And really what we ended up finding is not that criminologists are more criminal than anybody, but they are pretty much on par with the average Joe. It's not that they are more you know, I think if you go to any profession, you'll find out that every profession commits crimes as a profession, as a group. So I don't think this is any eye-opening, smoking gun, whoa, voila, moment. What do you guys think? Go ahead, Mike. You go oh, first. Uh, I, uh, I, I was, I, I'm with you on this. This is part, you know, lying, cheating, stealing. That's part of the human condition that humans have to deal with. We, you know, that's who we are. Uh, the only thing I wish they had done, and I think she touched on at the very end, was do, uh, if you ask, say, 100 or 1,000, uh, you know, whatever number of criminologists you ask, ask an equal number of people who aren't criminologists to see if the criminologist's percentage matches the average Joe's percentage. And uh, as she mentioned, it probably is right around the same, because where do you get criminologists from you get them from normal normal activities they might have a heightened interest absolutely uh, but those numbers to me weren't jarring whatsoever no i was going to basically say something similar i was going to say that if you took the study and you applied mm -hmm. it to the general public are uh, the numbers going to be uh yeah. much different that's uh where i was going with that i agree with you on that mike and, and you know mike um when we talk about uh you know, the evidence and, and all the different things that are going to, you know, take place in court. Um, I just think that, uh, you know, the way that the, the, the prosecution puts the evidence forward. And I think the way that the defense is going to attack that, you know, that could really be uh, viewed by the jury in a negative way by the defense. So I think they got to really walk very carefully, uh, you know, when they're in this courtroom. Uh, I think that there's going to be a lot of sympathy towards the fact that these four young students were slaughtered in their sleep. Uh, so again, uh, you know, the evidence is, does seem like it's going to be powerful, but how they criticize it or attack it. I'm talking about the defense. I think that's really a loaded gun right there. They could really blow up on them. Oh yeah. I mean, once you, once you get the, uh, as we talked about before, uh, like Mike Vecchio even mentioned, you put uh, DM on the stand 
you know, you might even put uh, the other uh, surviving girl, I BK, uh, I'm not sure what her initials are. Um, you know, you put them on the stand. Yeah, you could ask them questions in uh, cross-examination, you know, about how much they had to drink, how little sleep they had, you know, the darkness in the room, uh, in, in the, in the, in the uh, building, uh, you know, that what they might have heard, uh, and then going back to sleep and how that doesn't really seem to make much sense. Yeah, they'll do it, but they are going to be, they have to walk, as you said, absolutely, you're right, the fine line, because you don't want it. They will probably be the number one or number one and two witnesses. And you don't want to start off on a bad foot as a defense attorney. Later on, when you get the police officers there, you got the detectives, the FBI agents, the criminologists, the DNA people, then you can start attacking you know, them more aggressively, the numbers, the uh, method by which they analyze something, how they gathered it, you know, things like that. But you're right. Absolutely, Phil, the very beginning, they have to be very careful with those two, uh, with, with DM and perhaps her, uh, the other surviving roommate also. Absolutely. You know, I just want to say, because uh, we always say this, that uh, Brian Koberger is innocent until proven guilty. He gets due process. I think in a case like this, due process is as important or more important than even any uh, murder case, because this is happens to be a death penalty case. This happens to be a quadruple murder. And in our system, again, you're innocent to proven guilty and you get due process. People are talking about his counsel. He doesn't have the ability to pay for counsel. So what did they do? They appointed counsel free of charge. That's part of our system also. And is his, many of you may ask, is his counsel competent? And the answer to that is yes, she's outside the Moscow community. They brought in a legal aid attorney who has a great deal of experience and they wouldn't put a first timer in an inexperienced defense attorney because they'd be eviscerated by everybody if they did that because she will no doubt be going up against some really talented legal minds and not just the prosecutor from Moscow, but he's going to have help probably from the state attorney general's office. He's going to have some hired guns to come in and help him with this case. Some besides uh, all the police investigators, the FBI, you know, that's what the prosecution and the people are always criticized for is that they have unlimited funds and the uh, defense does not. So that's what they're always criticized about. And in this case, yes, the prosecution's going to go all out to try to obtain a conviction. You know, Billy, uh, the way the system of justice works in this country is, like you said, they're going to uh, they're going to appoint a uh, a person to represent him that is up, up to the 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 challenge that's going to be at hand. And I like to say, you're not going to get a shoemaker to do brain surgery. You're going to have to get someone that is familiar with that type of uh, uh, you know prosecution and and defense. Um, you know, I, I'd like to ask Professor Mike a question. Uh, we talked about profiling, and I think that this is going to be important for the audience to understand. We talked about the, uh, I'm sorry, not the profiling, the probable cause part of uh, the case. And uh, maybe Mike, you could just go through what the fruits of the poisonous tree are, because if the probable cause is challenged, anything that comes out of that probable cause, let's say the search warrant would be excluded from the trial. Could you explain that to us a little bit, Mike? Yeah. Under, you know, everyone has a fourth amendment right against unreasonable searches and seizures it's made applicable to the states like Idaho uh, through the 14th Amendment. And under that, under, um, you know, and then you also have the, you know, on the Fifth Amendment and Sixth Amendment, you have the right to Miranda, you know, counsel, right against self-incrimination. And if the police dot their I's, cross their T's and do everything, cor you know, correctly, then um, there any evidence that they want to introduce a trial that it, that the judge thinks is relevant. Uh, can be challenged by the by the defense, and if the in a judge's opinion, if there if the defendant's Kohlberger's Fifth Amendment right uh, and Sixth Amendment rights under Miranda, uh, which doesn't really apply here because he never really made any statements, but also under the Fourth Amendment, um, then uh, the judge may decide that that evidence might have been gathered in violation of his Fourth Amendment rights and could actually um, exclude it from trial. And then if you exclude one piece of evidence from trial, 
a defense attorney is going to say, well, it, Your Honor, if you excluded that one piece of evidence, you must exclude a following piece of evidence that they got from the original piece of evidence that you just excluded. Derivative evidence, the fruit of the poison tree. And that's what, uh, and a lot of people don't understand that, but that's what Detective um, Phil is talking about, is if you get one piece of evidence and it gets thrown out, any evidence that you, any further evidence that the police may have gathered from that poisoned apple, you know, is going to be thrown out. And uh, that's really important. Um, it doesn't happen too often, but sometimes it does, and it could have some catastrophic consequences. Um, but generally, when it comes to like the Fourth Amendment and deciding whether or not a, a piece of evidence has been gathered in violation of a defendant's Fourth Amendment rights, um, the judge will determine the, um, the constitutionality of that search and seizure from the police officer's point of view. Standing in the shoes of the police officer, does the judge believe that the police officer acted, um, you know, in good faith, you know, without malice uh, and, you know, uh, looking and reasonable. The touchstone of the Fourth Amendment is reasonableness, uh, but it could have catastrophic consequences if they did a, uh, a bad search in the beginning or there was no probable cause. Um, can I just go on a little bit more? Because I could talk about this for a while. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, the good thing is that although the defense is probably going to attack some of the evidence, absolutely, that was gathered from the uh, from the searches. The judge who's looking at that, and this is going to be the trial judge, will have to look at this, this you know, quantum of evidence that was already looked at by a previous judge who actually signed the search warrant. And so one judge is going to have to then say, did that previous judge, you know, did they believe what the, did they analyze and believe that the officers had probable cause? And, you know, 99.999% of the time, they will um, allow in all the evidence uh, and uphold that uh, warrant that was signed by the previous judge. Um, because the touchstone isn't perfection, it's um, reasonableness. And so even if a judge who at the trial is determining whether or not a piece of evidence should or should not have come in because the warrant may have been defective. 99% um, of the time, they're going to side with the previous judge and they're going to side with the officers because so long as the officers acted reasonable, then it's a good search. Wow, Mike, don't send me a bill for that. Uh, <laughs> Attorneys for that. get paid by the word. For that long lecture there. Schmitty, thank you for the $5 super chat. I'm sure both sides are honing in on the importance of cell phone pings. A snippet to be a fly on the wall in that courtroom. Schmitty is so right. We would all like to know all of the information they have on that. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. And if you like real crime from a police perspective, then you're in the right place. And if you're not subscribed to us, please go on our YouTube. Hit that subscribe button. Give us a thumbs up. And ring that bell. Share us with your friends, family. Make comments. We love to read your comments. And most of the time, we respond to it. You know, we love to uh, hear and read what you're thinking about. Also, if you want to uh, help us out, we have a Patreon. If you want to um, back us up financially. And we also have a YouTube channel membership. And you see all the folks with the green font in the chat. They're part of our YouTube family. We really appreciate our family and all of our subscribers. You know, this has been, even though a lot of this we have covered before, it's always good to, you know, be a fly on the wall. Listen to us talk, three uh, NYPD veterans that have done investigations, homicides, robberies, burglaries, assaults, all these type of things. And here, Phil calls it spitballing. I call it hypothesizing and theorizing. And I don't know what Professor Geary calls it. I'm sure it's a lot smarter than what Phil and I call it. But uh, we like to call it, we like to use street slang to describe it. Phil says spitballing. I say hypothesizing, theorizing. Professor Geary, what do you say? I'll go with uh, the Brooklyn guy, spitballing. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> That's what the Bronx and Brooklyn have in common. That's we right. That's right. Uh, Manhattan makes it, Brooklyn takes it, they used to say when they would come to Manhattan to do robberies, right? Manhattan yeah. makes it, Brooklyn takes it. So, guys, 
we're out over an hour and five minutes. I think it was a fascinating. I'm so glad we got back to our show again because I was going to a little bit of uh, withdrawal from not getting on the air and talking to Me our subscribers, fans, and friends. And even Mike Geary was like, "Oh, Bill, you're going to do a show? Come on, you got." Oh yeah. Thank God, my wife sent me her laptop, or I'd still be down. You know, so we're up on the air. I want to thank everyone that came by tonight. I hope everything went smoothly tonight. No disasters. Um, Phil, I'm going to give you last words, and I'll let Professor Geary have last words, and then we'll say sayonara. Last words. I don't think we mention the names of the victims often enough, so I'm going to read their names: Madison Mogan, Kaylee Gonzalez. Uh, Zanna Canoodle and Ethan Chapin. May they rest in peace. God rest their souls. And I think we also need to recognize uh, and haven't said it enough, the Moscow Police Chief James Fry and all the police officers in the Moscow Police Department that aided in this investigation that worked on it, as well as the state police in Idaho and the FBI, everybody involved. I think there was a lot of hard work that went into this case. Uh, again, when Bill and I have done cases and, and saw, uh, Professor Gary, Sergeant Gary, you may know as well, when you get a homicide, there's no holidays, there's no weekends, there's no uh, you know parties. It's work, 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 especially on such a high-profile quadruple homicide as this. So again, thank those uh, officers and uh, those investigators. Really, really great job. Professor Mike, final words? Well, just to ask the uh, viewers to um, have patience and understanding. This um, case is going to go on for quite a while, so don't lose patience. And to um, just think about uh, the uh, two surviving um, roommates and, uh, you know, um, just be understanding because we might not understand, you know, why they did what they did. And the telephone call to 911 took a long time to make, eight hours. But uh, we should not try to second-guess those young ladies and just try to remember them too in our thoughts and our prayers. Absolutely, Mike. Thank you for your uh, thank you for your dissertation tonight. It was it was almost like taking a class, folks. Thank you so much for coming by, listening tonight. This is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon. Have a great night, and God bless everyone. One episode, just